Beautiful lyrics. I love that. Thank you, worship team. Well, big question to start off our time this morning. What does it mean to be free? Is there anything you've ever thought about? What does it mean to be free? Here in America, freedom is a concept that we value highly. And rightfully so. Although our, our government is a terribly flawed system. <laughs> and we're certainly seeing that more and more every day. And although we're governed by terribly flawed politicians, and that is becoming very clear as well, I'm still convinced that America as an idea is the greatest experiment that man has ever tried. And the freedoms that we have enjoyed in this country for more than 240 years now have provided almost an unlimited platform for us to spread the good news of the gospel from sea to shining sea and even to the ends of the earth. And for that reason, we should never take our freedoms for granted because we know how quickly they can be taken from us by godless tyrants. We should always be ready to advocate for the continuation of freedom here in America so that we can freely do what we're doing right now, assemble together for the purpose of worship and to preach the good news of salvation in Christ. So we love freedom as Americans, and, and sometimes when we think about being free, that's the first thing that comes to our mind, and that's, that's a good thing. We ought to think carefully about those things. But there's an even greater concept of freedom that we're going to bump into in our passage in Romans this morning, even greater. What does it mean to be free as a Christian? To be out from under the bondage of sin and to live and prosper under the reign of God's grace. What does it mean to be free to you in relationship to God? Now you might remember we were back in chapter 5. Paul gave us this list of things that we've been freed from. If, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've bowed your knee to him and received him by faith, there's a whole bunch of things we've been freed from. Freed from the wrath of God. That's good news, isn't it? Freed from the penalty of sin. Freed from the fear of condemnation. We've been granted all those freedoms by his grace, and that's amazing, isn't it? But in the meantime, as we've now come through chapter 6, what we can say here is that a shadow has been cast across what Paul calls his gospel of grace. It seems that, at least in the first century in the Roman church, there were people who completely misunderstood what he was trying to get through, what he was trying to say to them. Some within the worshiping community in Rome thought grace was so amazing that now we have a license to sin, to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. To sin as much as we want. Why? Because grace abounds. And so here in chapter 6, Paul has been working hard to correct that misunderstanding. God does care about how we live, Christians. He cares about how we live. His grace doesn't just save us. Remember, it changes us too. It empowers us to walk in what Paul calls newness of life. Not only is there justification in Christ, there is sanctification too, a gradual growing, a progressive growing in godliness and holiness. And so in verse 11 of chapter 6, and we looked at this last Sunday, Paul laid out the very first imperative in the letter. The very first command in the entire book of Romans comes in chapter 6, verse 11. He says, consider yourselves now to be dead to sin. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, know who you are. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, know who you are. You are in union with Christ. You're united to him in both his death and in his resurrection. So consider that, Paul says. Meditate on that. Know it to be true. Believe it to be true. Live out your truest identity, being united in Christ. 
And as a result of that, he says, stop presenting your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. Why would you, why would you battle for the other kingdom? By taking your body parts and turning them into weapons for unrighteousness, he says. Don't let sin reign in you for this one very important reason. You ready? Because you have a new master. You have a new master. And that idea is now going to lead us into a very important and very well-known argument from Paul on the issues of slavery and freedom. So if you don't have your Bibles open yet, make sure you open them. And let's go to Romans chapter 6. We're going to actually bite off quite a bit this morning, verses 15 to 23, because really there's a whole bunch of recurring themes in all of these verses that I think we can handle here in one sitting. Actually, let's back up to verse 14, because that leads us into the rest of the chapter. So look at verse 14. Paul says this, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now that's an important statement. We'll come back to that in just a minute. You're not under law, but under grace. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were, that you were slaves of sin, You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching in which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became what? Slaves of righteousness. Underline that. That's huge. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in what? Sanctification, underline that word. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, what? Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beautiful language, right? Now, as we saw previously at, at, in verse 1, if you look up at chapter 6, verse 1, Paul was already concerned about people misunderstanding his teaching on grace. So he's going out of his way twice in this chapter to anticipate objections from people in his audience. That's what you do as a good a good preacher and teacher. You know your audience, you know your people, and you can anticipate what questions they might have, or how they might twist or abuse what you're trying to say. So after making this statement in chapter 5, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, he anticipates an objection. He says in verse 1, look, if that's true, if that's true that more sin equals more grace, why shouldn't we continue to sin so that grace increases? Which actually makes a ton of logical sense on its face, right? But it's an undermining of, of the gospel. And of course, Paul's answered. To that is, may it never be? Absolutely not. Well, why? Because our old self has been crucified with Christ. It's dead. We died with him. We died to sin. And therefore, we can't continue to live in that pattern anymore. Now, again, we looked at it last week. It doesn't mean we're going to live perfectly, but that cannot be what marks our life is a, a pattern of sin in our life. Next, we see Paul write in verse 14 
that sin shall not be master over you. In other words, it shouldn't have dominion. There's, this is kingly language. It shouldn't be king over you. It shouldn't have dominion or rule over you. Well, why? Why? Because you're no longer under law, he says, but under grace. Now, I picture as soon as Paul writes that, he realizes, okay, somebody's going to twist that. Somebody's going to abuse that teaching. So he rhetorically asks here in, in verse 15, again, anticipating the objection, he says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? In other words, hey, we can do as we please now because God's grace is so sufficient, it's so overwhelming, it will cover anything that I do. So does it matter how we live? And once again, the apostle says, that's wrong. May it never be. Absolutely not. And from there, Paul's going to launch his famous analogy related to slavery. Now, before we go any further, we need to lay a little bit of a, a theological foundation here. And this is a, an important one, and it's somewhat controversial. And it goes to the heart of Paul's argument throughout Romans, but also in some of his other letters. And that is the distinction that he makes between law and grace. And here we see it shown very distinctly in both uh, verses 14 and 15. We see this statement, we're not under law. What does that mean? There's a lot of confusion about this because we, when we think of the law, we immediately go back to the Old Testament. We start asking all kinds of questions. Well, okay, the church isn't the same as Israel, and the law was given to Israel, so what do we obey, what don't we obey? And there's all kinds of opinions out there. But in this context here, we have to ask the question, what does Paul mean? Well, let me start by saying what I think he doesn't mean. Number one, he doesn't mean that there's no longer any rules or commands for us to follow under the reign of grace. Folks who often think this way, they'll say, well, the rules are gone. Look at the Pharisees. That's their favorite sort of straw man argument. Look at the Pharisees, those mean, ugly Pharisees. They were all about the rules, and so Jesus came to rebuke them and take away all those rules. Jesus took all the rules away, all the commands, because the Pharisees were so mean and nasty. So this is about battling legalism, they say, but it's, it's really a very ignorant position. I mean, it'd be tough to make the case that, that God stopped caring about the holiness of his people just because Jesus came. That, that would be a difficult case to make. And in fact, when you open the New Testament, guess what you see all over the place? Commands. What we call imperatives. In fact, by, by some scholars' count, there's somewhere around 1,100 Did you catch that? 1,100 imperatives in the pages of the New Testament. So it can't be that that just because we're now under this reign of grace that there's no rules or commands that we're supposed to live by. The second thing is other folks try to make this false distinction. They say this, well, in the Old Testament, under law, you had to obey. But in the New Testament, under grace, you obey because you want to. Now, there is some truth to that, but there's all kinds of theological problems in that statement as well. First of all, the Old Testament saints weren't saved because they had to obey. The Old Testament saints, if you're going to say the Old Testament saints were saved by obeying the law, then no Old Testament saints will be in heaven. So we've got to be careful with that. Second, freedom for the New Testament believer doesn't mean that godliness is now optional. Or that somehow we just obey when we want to. Or because we feel like obeying. That's all pretty silly. So what does Paul mean then? So what's, if, that's, if it's not either one of those things, what does he mean when he says we're not under law? And so this is a really important statement to make. He's talking about power here. The context here, Paul is talking about power as it relates to the law. The strength of sin's power over mankind is found in the condemning aspects of the law. 
And I'll give you an example from Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, Paul says this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Very important statement. So when we talk about moving from under law to under grace, we're talking about power. We're talking about what masters us, what has dominion over us. We need to know this. Through Christ, God has not only dealt with the guilt of our sin, but he's also broken the power of sin over his people. That's important. I've not only been forgiven by God, I'm being transformed by him. Why? Because there's a new power working within me, the spirit of grace. Does that make sense? Here's a theological way of saying that. After justification comes sanctification. Or in a more simpler fashion, after forgiveness comes transformation. As a redeemed people, we're no longer controlled and dominated by this tyrannical master we know is sin. That power's been broken by Christ. Now we live under this reign of grace, and we're under control of something completely different. No longer sin, we're now under control of the Spirit of God. That makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? And so if that's true, Paul's saying, he's asking this question, if that's true about us, that we're, that we're under a new master, and we have a new power working within us, he says, how can you possibly say then that it doesn't matter how we live? How can you possibly say that you can go on sinning, living as you please, if you have a new master and a new power? Does that make sense? So that's what Paul's getting at here. Understand the... Again, God has not only forgiven you from the the penalty of sin, he's broken the dominion of sin in your life, if you know him personally. Now, verse 16 is Paul's answer to that rhetorical question. How can you possibly go on sinning? Verse 16 says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? See, here's a really important truth bomb that Paul's dropping here. This is really important for us to understand. He wants us to know this. Don't you know that we're all slaves to someone? Don't you know that? Did you think you were totally free? We're all slaves to someone. You should know that, he says. So say it with me this morning. I'm a slave. Very good. It's true. That is the reality. Whomever you choose to obey, you're a slave to that person or thing. Don't you know that's a reality of life, Paul is asking? Obligation is not optional in this world. The question is, who or what are you obligated to? Now, some people will say, Jeff, you're wrong. I'm free. I do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. If Paul could answer that, he'd say, that is a myth. That type of freedom you're talking about is a myth. It doesn't really exist. You're always obligated to whatever you're pursuing. Whether that's sin or that's righteousness, whether it's Satan's agenda or your agenda or God's agenda... You're a slave to whatever you're pursuing. By the way, even the great theologian Bob Dylan knew that. Okay? Right? If you're my age, you know what I'm talking about. Back in 1979, remember, remember 1979? Good year. He wrote a song, and it's called Gotta Serve Somebody. And he wrote this lyric, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. Not bad for a rock and roll guy. So here's the point, guys. There is no middle ground to be staked out here in this debate. You cannot not be a slave. You cannot not be a slave. The only question is, 
who is your master? And that's, that's really what we're talking about. Who is your master? You may think that your life is free. You may step back and say, well, no, Paul's got it wrong. I don't believe what the Bible says. I'm completely free. You may think you're calling the shots, but ultimately nobody is their own boss. You either serve a gracious, loving master whose all commands are for your good, or you serve a tyrannical master who will lead you down a path towards sin and death. Those are your choices. Those are the choices of all humanity. Everybody serves someone. Amen? Get that straight. So whether you're a Christian here this morning or you're not, or you're just seeking, or you're, you're holding back and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, know that you're serving somebody. You are a slave. Now, then comes a great praise in verse 17. Take a look at this. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that through, that through, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, Paul uses a verb here in what we call the imperfect tense. It describes a continuing action in the past. You once were slaves. You were slaves of sin. That's true of everybody in this room. At one time or another, sin was our master. The good news is, by the grace of God, we didn't stay there. And that's what Paul's talking about here. So three things to see in this, in this uh, one verse, very quickly. First of all, notice who Paul praises for this. He doesn't say, I praise you Romans for deciding to pray a prayer and accept Jesus. Okay, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Thanks be to God, he writes. He praises God for the conversion of these Christians in Rome. As he does in all of his letters, the glory goes to God for saving us, always. The second thing is, notice Paul's qualifier on the obedience that comes out of these Christians. He says, it's obedience from the heart. What does that mean? From the heart. It means that it's not moralism. Paul never preaches moralism. He always preaches true transformation of the heart. What is moralism? The idea that we, we just do good things for the sake of appearance. We, just, we do good things because it makes us look good. Because it's going to give us approval from other men and women. No, this is from the heart. This wasn't something burdensome. It wasn't some type of heavy yoke. This is obedience from a joyful heart. This is what the world doesn't understand about Christianity, right? I mean, they look at us and they say, oh, you poor Christians, look at all these things you have to do. What they don't understand is it's not burdensome. It's not a heavy yoke. It's from the heart. My affections have been changed. I want to do this. I have a joyful heart in this obedience. It comes from deep within my soul because of my great love for the one who saved me. Oh, that they would know that, right? Why do we do evangelism? So we can tell that story. Oh, that you would know, friend, why I obey. It comes from my heart. It's a joy. It's a privilege. I want to worship and I want to love this God who has done everything for me. This is the type of obedience that comes from knowing God intimately. From walking with him, from being abiding in the vine, trusting in his kindness towards you. Right, Trusting that all of his, his commands and all the things that he asks for us is actually for our good. Not, not because he wants to make us just do things for no purpose, because it's for our good and for his glory. That's the type of obedience that Paul's talking about here. This is the type of obedience when, when you walk in his commands for all the right reasons. Why? Because you want to worship him with all of your life, because you want to love him. That's the type of obedience that comes from the heart. The third thing here to notice is this is obedience to something, Right? That's important because if we all make up our own rules about obedience, we have an issue. Well, I'm obeying in the way I think I should obey. That's a problem. It's to something. To what? 
Look at, the, look at the verse. To a particular form of teaching. Now, I realize that the English translation here, it's a little bit awkward. The NAS is really awkward. It says, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Okay? Uh, the NIV is a little bit more clear. Let me read it to you. You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. In other words, the things that you've been convinced of. This, this body of doctrine, and that's what Paul's referring to here. It's been more than 20 years since Christ died and was raised from the dead. And during those 20 years, you had this constant passing on of, of, of a body of doctrine and ethics that connected to Christianity. And so he's talking about the very things that have been handed down from the apostles to those in the church family. But the point of this is the natural outcome of any man or any woman who is freed from sin is that they then obey from the heart, what? The word of God. That that's a natural outcome. That's a natural passion that comes from anybody who's been freed from sin, who's been saved. That they now look to God's word and say, I want to obey this out of joy from my heart. Make sense? Good. Now, verse 18 is huge. Verse 18 really is the key. If you have a highlighter, if you're a highlighter person, verse 18 is that hinge again. It's that key verse in the passage. So let's look at it. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Just take a moment and read that for yourself. Do you catch the irony in that statement? The first part says that we've been set free. The second part says we become slaves. So which is it? Are we free or are we slaves? Yeah, yes. Very good. Yeah, the answer is both. Both. This is so this this can be confusing language, but the answer is both. We're free under our new master, Jesus, and we become slaves to righteousness. So again, this is why Paul you can understand why Paul thought, okay, this could be misunderstood because this language is really hard. At first glance, it seems like a very strange way to teach on this subject. So let's see. In order to illustrate what Christian freedom is, I'm going to introduce the subject of slavery. That just doesn't sound you know, quite right to our, to our logical ears. And Paul's not being flippant about this. Here's something to think about. As Paul brings up this issue of slavery, and this is, again, a well-known argument that he brings, Understand that there were probably people in this Roman church who at one time were slaves or even were slaves at the time this letter was written because slavery in the Roman Empire was, was so replete. So it's a tough, this is a touchy subject. And what Paul's trying to do is to use an analogy that will really connect the dots for his audience. And in fact, here's the way I read verse 19. It's somewhat of an apology, what he writes here. He says, look, I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, I'm, I'm using a human analogy. In other words, Paul's thinking, there might be a better way to do this, but I'm going to give you a really common human analogy. Why? Because of the weakness of your flesh. Because of your human limitations. Because of your inability to really process through this. I'm going to, I'm going to take a risk here, and I'm going to use a metaphor that, that might be unpopular. That might actually rub some of you the wrong way. But it's worth it because it really makes my point. That's sort of how I read verse 19. Here's what Paul wants to do. He wants to shock his audience out of the illusion that you can be free apart from Christ. Let me say that again. He wants to shock his audience using this, again, this metaphor that probably would have been a little hard to hear in the first century. He wants to use this to shock them out of the illusion that you can be free apart from Christ. The great delusion that the world is under, even now, 
is that human beings are freest when we get to do whatever we want. I mean, if you ask the average person on the street who doesn't know Christ, they'll probably tell you, the ultimate sense of freedom is when I get to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. I get to do my own thing. I get to fulfill my own desires. I get all of my needs met. That's true freedom. Paul is shooting that down here in this passage. He wants us to know that that is not freedom at all. In fact, it's the opposite. That mindset is actual slavery and slavery of the worst kind. Here's how... One British scholar, a man named Charles Cranfield, how he put it. He said, The man who imagines he is free because he acknowledges no God but himself is deluded. For the service of self is the very essence of slavery to sin. Think about that. It sort of turns human thinking on its head, doesn't it? All of that freedom, all that I do whatever I want is actually the greatest form of slavery because it serves who? Self. Interesting. How many times have we seen this happen in the world around us? We've watched people throw away their lives, right? Compulsively seeking after the things of this world, compulsively seeking to fulfill their desires and to get all their needs met. Sometimes we see it in the public eye, right? We see celebrities and politicians and and athletes, people like this. We watch them destroy themselves. Other times, they're people that we know, people in our lives, maybe even friends or acquaintances, who've chosen the path of slavery. And they've chosen this path of slavery thinking that they're actually pursuing freedom. It's a contradiction, isn't it? But over time, we've witnessed their self-destruction, always pursuing temporal desires and passions, seeking after earthly riches and fame and position. They've pursued their own course. They've, as Frank Sinatra said, they did it their way. And unbeknownst to them, they were living a life of slavery. They've been deceived, right? They're spiritually blind. They, they think they're pursuing freedom, but they're actually growing in slavery. Slaves to what? Slaves to sexual immorality. Slaves to greed. Slaves to ambition. Slaves to the approval of other people. Slaves to physical appearance. Slaves to food or drink. Slaves to entertainment. Slaves to, to relaxation. Slaves to social media, right? There's an endless number of things that we can say that people get involved in, pursue with all their heart, thinking they're free, but it's actually dragging them deeper and deeper into bondage. And guys, this is replete in our society, right? It's it's like this stuff has a vice grip on our entire society right now. And I know as you get older, you begin to see more things, but I remember back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. It was bad back then. It is It is nothing like today. This stuff has a vice grip on our society. It is literally destroying us from within. And you see it, right? We don't have to try to try to try to you know cover up what we see going on all around us. Everything is 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 growing dangerous. There's indicators. If we were driving down a a street and, and there was a car dashboard in front of us, every red light would be going off about our society where we live today. All the indicator lights would be flashing, warning, danger. We are becoming such a divided society. Isn't it true? Tribalism is on the rise. Self-centeredness is growing. Narcissism is everywhere. Victimhood is growing. Anger and hate everywhere. A, A sort of moral coldness has set in in our country. The shutting down of free speech is growing. Massive confusion over over what we thought were simple things like gender and family are growing. 
corruption in all of our institutions. We're seeing it even in just recent weeks. And behind all that, folks, is slavery to sin. People are in bondage to sin. That's just the bottom line. As obedient slaves, human beings will lust and they will pursue their selfish desires right up into physical death and eternal separation from God. And it's happening at a very quickly, quick pace right now. It's funny, this was actually prophesied. Some of you guys may have read when you were in high school or something, uh, Brave New World by Huxley, right? That was written in 1932. And he prophesied about, prophesied, I say that as a literary term. He, he prophesied about, about what the future would look like. And what did he say? He suggested that in the future, the biggest problem that we would face would be people loving the very things that oppress them. Slavery to sin. That we would adore the technologies that actually undo our capacities to think. Man, are we seeing that everywhere, right? We've fallen in love with all these technologies that have actually lessened our ability to think rationally and to dialogue about things. In other words, Huxley believed that we will love the very things that ruin us. Incredibly biblical thoughts. So what's the antidote then? I mean, I just painted a pretty ugly picture, right? What's the antidote? If that's slavery, what's true freedom? Well, we just read the answer. It's in verse 18. Look at it again. The answer to that comes in two parts. Number one, being freed from the power and dominion of sin, and that's God's work alone, right? To be freed from the dominion of sin, the rule of sin over us, that's God's work. But number two, this is is so against what we think, pursuing slavery, pursuing greater slavery to righteousness. And that's a cooperative work. That's the work the Spirit wants to do within us, but we cooperate with Him in that sanctification. If you want to be truly happy, I'm going to put this on the screen. If you want to be truly happy, if you want to be truly blessed, if you want to be truly free, I'm here to tell you, pursue slavery. That's what Paul's saying. He describes this. Look at the end of verse 19. He says, present your members, the the parts of your body he's talking about there. Present your mind and your heart, everything that you are. Your entire self, present them as slaves to righteousness. Why? Because that pursuit, Paul says it right here, will result in sanctification. Ever-increasing holiness. Being more and more confirmed to the image of Christ. Folks, that's where true freedom is found. In the will of God, being conformed to the image of his son. Listen to me now. The freest person in the world, the freest person in the world is the one who presents himself as a slave of righteousness. That's Paul's big idea here. You're like, I want to be free? Be a slave. Be a slave to God, and you'll find that freedom. Now, verses 20 to 23, he's going to go on to prove that point. Let's take a look at it. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit? What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And then this very famous verse, right? 623. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Paul's doing here, he's showing this, this really great contrast for us. In the NASB, the key word that he uses to draw this contrast, you see it both in verses 21 and 22, is the word benefit, karpos in the Greek. Benefit, okay? The ESV calls it fruit, and that's a better translation. That's a more literal translation. What he's talking about is fruit. Now, we think of fruit, we're like, what? The fruits of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit produces in us. But guess what? Sin also produces fruit, bad fruit. So he's comparing the fruit of, of the life, a life of sin versus the fruit that comes out of a life of righteousness. When you were under the power of sin, he asks, what kind of uh, a fruit was your life producing? Things that you're ashamed of, right? Things that you're ashamed of. Now, can anybody else in this place testify to that truth? That when you were living under the dominion of sin, you did things that are shameful? Man, I can I mean, I, I lived 21 years on this planet apart from Christ as an atheist, as somebody that wanted nothing to do with God, and I did some shameful things. I mean, I really identify with this verse. I, I cringe. Gina recently came up to me. Sorry, I'm going to call it Gina. Gina came up to me recently, and she said, hey, I met somebody who knew you in college. <laughs> oh, man. Really? I mean, I know it's been a long time, but I cringe when I think about who I was apart from Christ in high school, and even more so in college. I cringe. So much sin. So much debauchery in my life. The way I look back at the way I thought, the way I acted, the way I treated people, the way I pursued nothing but self-fulfillment, the fruit of my life in those 21 years, I'm ashamed. And now I realize, looking back on it, where I would have gone, what the result of that would have been if God had not rescued me. If God had not drawn me out of my own blindness. If he hadn't transformed my heart and brought me to life, where would I be? I'd be on the path of death. The wages of sin is death, he says, and that's where I was headed. Maybe you can testify to that in your life. We can't cover that truth up, folks. Out of our desire to look all polished and shiny and nice, may we never try to hide what we used to be apart from Christ. It's part of our story. It's part of God's testimony through us to his saving power. I had earned death in those 21 years. That was the wage that was due me. And it would have been perfectly right and perfectly just for God to have paid me that wage. And sent me to hell. That's why we say thanks, thanks be to God, right? Now look at the contrast, verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. By the way, there's Paul using the aorist passive uh, verb once again. We, we've seen him do this a number of times. Having been freed, he writes. Having been freed. He's telling us about something that has been completed for us in the past. For us, we're the, we're the passive player in this. God is the active mover. He is, he is the one who frees us from guilt and, and, and frees us from the power of sin. We don't wake up one day and say, gee, I want to turn to God and be freed from the power of sin. We're passive in that process. He's the active mover. Not only that, he says here that God actively delivered us out of slavery to sin and then delivered us into slavery to righteousness. It's this idea of he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He actively did that. He says, I'm going to take you out of slavery here. I'm going to put you into slavery over here. He's the active mover. 
And it says this amazing phrase, enslaved to God. How many of you guys, does that feel weird to you? To be enslaved to God? Sometimes we read that and we go, ooh, that feels strange. Because I, I, I want to, we have this, we, we hold on to this thing in our flesh. I go, I want to I love God out of my free will. <laughs> right? We've talked about free will here before, right? We actually don't want free will. We want a changed will that conforms with the will of God. That's what we want. So the fact that I've been enslaved to God, that makes perfect sense, right? Remember what Paul told the Corinthians about their bodies. He said, you are not your own. You're not your own. Why? You've been bought with a price. So if you want Jesus, understand you've been bought. And it was a high price, the highest price imaginable. So you're not your own. You're a slave now to God. And we ought to say praise the Lord to that, right? And what's the benefit or the fruit? Of being enslaved to God. He says sanctification. And the outcome of sanctification is what? Eternal life. Why? Because God is completing his work in us. Sanctification, this progressive, gradual growing in holiness. God will complete that work. And when we leave this earth, it will be done. And we'll be free from sin altogether. Man, that's good news. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's free. It's not earned. Actually, it is earned, but not by us. It's earned by Jesus, right? He earned it for us. It's free to us. Man, that's amazing. It's a benefit. It's a fruit granted to us by God, by his mercy and grace, and earned for us by another, by the perfect son of God. His grace not only leads to forgiveness, but it leads us to holiness and ultimately to eternal life. Big ideas. These are profound things, aren't they? Listen, here, I'll just wrap up with this. When the world looks at you or me, what do they see? What do they see? They see men and women living with integrity. Well, why do you do that? Why not participate like the rest of the world? Live in a way that just benefits you. No, the world sees people that live with integrity. They live with contentment. Well, why do you do that? You should want more. Go get it. No, we live with contentment. The world sees people being faithful to their spouses. Why would you do that? Go get everything you can get. The world sees people teaching our children lessons out of Scripture. Saying no to things that threaten to trap us in sin. Living with self-control. Oh, you Christians. You prudes. Why would you put controls on yourself? Why would you put limitations? When the world looks at us, they say... You give up a Sunday morning? You get out of bed on Sunday morning to go into a building and to sing songs and to listen to boring 50-minute sermons? 45. <laughs> you give a portion of your hard-earned money to that local church and to missionaries? You know what they say to themselves? They say, oh, those Christians are missing out. If they only knew. If they only knew the truth. That's why we share the truth. They need to know. They need to know where it comes from. It's the man who is faithful to God's will and God's word who is truly blessed. We know that, right? He's the man who's truly happy. He's the man who is truly free because he lives in God's will. It's not the one who's out there living as he pleases. That man is a slave to sin. That man is not the commander of his soul. That man is in bondage. And we need to tell people that that's true. When I, when I finished working on this, this passage late this morning, 
Um, here's what hit me. Aren't, aren't you continually amazed that Christianity turns everything we think is true upside down? It just turns it on its head and says, you think you see what you, what you know, but you don't see it. It's actually quite the opposite. Whoever wants to be first needs to be last. To be the servant of all. I mean, that, the world doesn't buy that. The one who humbles himself will be lifted up, Scripture says. Whoever wants to live forever must first die to himself. And this one, the man who is a slave to God is actually the one who is most free. Friends, these are the most profound truths in all the universe. They really are. We ought to consider them carefully. We ought to meditate on them constantly. And we ought to trust in them completely. Amen? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Let's pray.